Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. The result of the strict COVID-19 regulations, the strict new security law and the strict policing of both of these sets of rules has the pandemic and the protests firmly under control. The lively hum of what I felt in January, so characteristic of this often idealised town, hasn't returned. What remains is a lingering fear among Cariocas. Today, the urbanist embarks on a round-the-world trip to check the pulse of some of the cities that we love. From a slightly lethargic London to a cautiously optimistic Auckland, and all the way back again, we enlist the help of our correspondents to bring us snapshots from their corners of the globe. Are the cracks showing for Cariocas? And is New Delhi turning over a new leaf when it comes to infections? That's all coming up on this week's edition of The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. London, how are you feeling? I must say you look better than last time I wrote one of these reports on your health. Sitting here at my desk in Midori House, I can hear workmen on a nearby building site, children heading to school, planes flying overhead. And that's good because even this summer, I worried how quiet and withdrawn you seemed. And last weekend, despite the rain, it felt like you'd got some of your old swagger back. The pubs were busy with cheery drinkers, restaurants filled with conspiratorial lovers, cafes with people lost in their newspapers, even if everything had to close by 10pm. But, well, I still worry about what's going on deep down. Are you really okay? The months of total lockdown may have passed, hopefully never to return, but the infamous second wave seems to be placing your full recovery in peril almost daily, especially from the champions of another full lockdown. And perhaps the passing of time has also dimmed our memories of how you used to be, made us think that this is closer to normal than it actually is. It's only when you see a film or TV show shot on your streets before all of this began that you awaken from this self-deception. When a TV camera pans across a thronged street, takes you onto a dance floor or into a heaving restaurant you suddenly realise how far off you are from making a full recovery. You are not a city denuded of all pleasures or treats, but without the nightclubs, the theatres, the football matches, the parties, the Hindus, the visiting delegations, the packed shops, the pubs where you have to elbow your way to the bar, then your value, your meaning, what you have to offer the world is, well, a little bit lost. Your squares and streets, your museums and office blocks were not designed to be so sparsely populated, so denied of spontaneity. London, please, be honest. How are you feeling? Look, I don't think this is existential, but all this talk about people fleeing your embrace for new lives in rural idyls must be getting you down. And these experts pontificating about your condition, trying to diagnose the causes of your woes, don't they annoy you just a bit? Yes, I know you've been through difficult moments before, but even so. But perhaps this worrying is less about you, more about 
us. An attempt to take stock and make sure that we can get through all of this uncertainty. And then, well, then I look out the window again at the autumn leaves falling from the London plane trees, at the dogs scampering on the grass, and the traffic edging by. And I think, surely, it will be okay again. It's going to take you a while to recuperate, to get you fully back, but I've got a feeling that you will make it. There will be setbacks and upsets, but you will get through this, come back stronger, rediscover your strengths, your charisma, and soon charm another generation of people who will be determined to call you home. London, how are you? It's okay. Don't answer. I know. You're doing just fine. Well, from London, we jumped the Atlantic now, virtually, of course, to New York. The city was hit harder by the pandemic than anywhere else in the US, and lockdowns shuttered non-essential shops and businesses for months. Now, out of lockdown, New York City has over a quarter of a million cases confirmed, and concerningly, the latest numbers show infection rates on the rise again. Our correspondent in the city, Henry Rhys Sheridan, brings us this report on some of the strange facts of life right now in the Big Apple. Each week, my wife drives us past the sprawling green cemeteries of Western Queens to the Trader Joe's supermarket in Rigo Park. We wait in line for 10 to 15 minutes to be admitted into the store, passing the time playing chess against each other on our phones. But it's only once we're inside that the real chess begins. The three-dimensional chess of supermarket social distancing. Signs on the wall instruct shoppers to stay at least six feet apart. But they let too many people into the shop at any one time for this to be feasible. As a result, staff and customers alike become involuntary partners in a socially complex dance around the aisles. The rules of the dance require us to pay tribute to the concept of social distancing by pausing considerately just before passing one another. Then, while actually passing, we must pathetically pantomime an attempt to establish distance in an aisle that's itself fewer than six feet wide. You must whisper, I'm sorry, excuse me, thanks very much, I'm sorry, as you squeeze between your fellow shopper and a meticulously organised display of cannellini beans. Thus, an uneasy truce is maintained and the social compact preserved. I haven't been to a barber since March. Every three weeks or so, my wife shaves my head. We haven't got a proper hair clipper, so we use my beard trimmer. It takes ages. It's a bit like polishing a bowling ball with a toothbrush. Occasionally the blade catches in a tangle, and I squeal like a little piggy whose tail has been yanked. Luckily, my hair is thinning at an alarming rate, so this doesn't happen too often. I don't mind going bald. It shows off my exquisitely shaped cranium, which has been called my most fetching physical attribute. Since June, outdoor restaurant seating, previously a rare sight in the city, has been spilling out into the streets. I cycle to a bar in East Williamsburg and sit on a sidewalk table with a group of non-Americans. We're allowed to dine inside now if we like, but of all the patrons at the bar, only one couple have elected to do so, and they're palpably freaks. One of the people I'm with has a pack of cigs. I start smoking one and imagining I'm Italian. 
The illusion is bolstered by the unofficial second name the local Italian-American community has given the street we're on, Via Vespucci. I look and feel incredibly sophisticated and pray that the alfresco tables are here to stay forever. Henry Rees Sheridan there, reporting from New York. Thank you. Staying in the Americas, we head now to Brazil. Residents of Rio de Janeiro have faced a tougher battle than many in protecting their health during the pandemic. Densely packed neighbourhoods are the norm in the city, and close quarters events like Carnival are tough to discourage for party-going cariocas. So how has the city changed over the past year? To explain more, here's Monocle's Lucinda Elliott. Oh, Rio. As a correspondent, the idea of writing from one of the city's emblematic beaches, or from a desk overlooking Christ the Redeemer, was somehow always fanciful. But in January, I made the move from her southern, more business-minded rival, São Paulo, and settled in. Long southern hemisphere summer nights, carnival parades, and the Copacabana lay ahead. There was an energy and excitement as we moved into February, with several businesses returning to the city after years of economic decline. High-end parties with open bar tabs and the jet set dusting off their costumes to take to the streets and samba. It was midday on a Wednesday, officially the last day of Rio's annual carnival celebration, commonly known as Ash Wednesday in the Christian calendar. My phone brings up a plus 44 telephone number. It was an editor in London. I've got glitter on my face and had just ordered my first caipirinha of the morning. People are writhing up against one another, music beating through the crowd, peppered with French and Italian tourists, all raising a glass to the final day. The first case of the coronavirus in Brazil has been confirmed, the voice on the other end of the line said. The timing, almost too perfect. Oh, Rio, how you then changed? Lockdown was soon imposed, hard in a city where informal jobs dominate and millions live in cramped conditions. Rocinha, one of the biggest favelas of Rio, today is almost twice as densely populated as Manhattan. For eight consecutive weeks, residents respected the beach closure. You couldn't sit on the sand, play sport, and police heavily guarded the shoreline. All the brightly coloured kiosks were closed, deemed non-essential, and those few who could afford to stay home did. Masks, when walking outside, quickly became the new fad. Brazilians have a tendency to take up trends. They are, after all, the kings of social media. You can still find a face covering as easily as a bottle of water or packet of gum, as thousands of retailers sell their own cloth versions. My favourite still remains the Powerpuff Girls option for toddlers. Hospitals were overrun, and many still are, as the daily death toll since May has remained consistently above 1,000 across continental-sized Brazil. Funds directed for field hospitals, like the one outside the Maracanã football stadium, have been siphoned off by politicians. In more recent months, business, as in many cities, has had to resume. Ipanema and Copacabana are mainly enjoyed by adolescents or those out of work, which hasn't been great for reviving the beach economy. There's not really a tourist in sight and the hotels, bars and restaurants that have survived this stint are starting up again, braving the new normal. But the lively hum of what I felt in January, 
so characteristic of this often idealised town, hasn't returned. What remains is a lingering fear among Cariocas that whether you're down at the beach, sipping a cocktail, or battling on its overcrowded buses, the threat of the coronavirus is everywhere. Our thanks to Lucinda Elliott reporting there on her beloved Rio de Janeiro. Now, across the Pacific to New Zealand, a country that was declared virus-free in June, but has since struggled with the unwelcome return of the pandemic. The resurgence forced Auckland, the nation's largest city, back into lockdown and put the rest of the country on edge too. Journalist Lee Seabrook-Suckling sent us this report from Auckland, a city eager to emerge once again. In early August, Auckland fell off an extremely high horse. After being revered the world over for three months for beating COVID, what was supposed to be our 102nd day without the virus in New Zealand turned out to signal lockdown 2.0 for the nation's biggest city. For 101 days, life in Auckland had a weird, twilight zone sort of feeling. While we watched Melbourne across the ditch explode in positive coronavirus cases, Kiwis had forgotten about obsessive hand-washing and social distancing. As the death count went up and up in the US, we hid our heads from the woes of the world and went back to the nightclubs, the sports games, the house parties. When Hong Kong's third wave hit, we patted ourselves on the back once again and shared a smug smile. Not normally ones to boast, but after the WHO and the international press had handed us most enviable nation trophies again and again, they had begun to pile up on the mantle. It wasn't a new normal. We went straight back to the old normal. And then we were faced with collective shock. Three months of naive freedom in Auckland, and we were back in lockdown after COVID seemingly snuck through the border. While this initial three-day lockdown will mainly affect the Auckland region, I am asking the team of 5 million to stand ready again as well. Together we've beaten the virus before and with fast action and by acting together, we can do so again. We have come too far to go backwards. I'm asking New Zealanders to once again... The rest of the country took on lighter, level two restrictions, but for Auckland, the centre of the new completely out of the blue outbreak, we were back in level three. This meant shops shuttered for all but takeaways. Gyms, theatres, churches and mosques closed and the central city emptied out once again for the first time since late March. It would be just my luck that after a long recruitment process, week one of lockdown 2.0 in Auckland was also week one in a new job for me. I'd moved up from Wellington, the capital, just a week prior and settled myself into a fully furnished downtown apartment. A 35 square meter studio, it wasn't a forever home, but rather a safe space to sleep and recharge after being at a new office all day. It was never meant to be somewhere I was stuck 24 seven. Despite having that three month taste of freedom, 
Aucklanders have still followed the international trend in 2020 by leaving the city for the suburbs. House prices here have reached their highest levels ever as Kiwis, like much of the rest of the world, have realised the value of a private garden and a bit more space to while away one's quarantined hours in. In that moment, I envied that strategy. The novelty of leasing an apartment where I could see my kitchen sink from my bed suddenly seemed a downright stupid commitment to make. But after a few lonely nights of the new lockdown, I stood on my tiny 11th floor balcony, the only outdoor space I had access to, and had a change of tune. I peered into the window of the quarantine hotel next door and saw dreary-eyed recent returnees idling away their time in government-managed isolation. I looked across the street to the dozen or so other apartment buildings around me and saw shadows of people cooking in their kitchens, jumping up and down in their living rooms for a spot of exercise and watching Netflix on their sofas for hours and hours on end. All of a sudden, I felt part of something. A sense of understanding that we're all in this together. I waved at a man in his hotel room a few floors down, and he waved back. It made me feel a lot less alone. When the rest of New Zealand opened up again with full freedoms just a few weeks later, there were remnants of anxiety around Aucklanders. We heard stories of cafes in Dunedin with signs saying no Aucklanders and sports events like the Rotorua Marathon that barred Aucklanders from participating. This fear should end today. After a second round of lockdown, Auckland eased social restrictions at midnight last night. We've more or less contained the virus once again and we're back at level one. For now. While I appreciate that we, as Kiwis, have been rightfully humbled by this experience, that three months of COVID-free life in New Zealand was spectacular. Yes, the horse we were riding was too high for us, but boy, was the view charming while atop the saddle. Many thanks to Lee Seabrook-Suckling in Auckland for that report. Next stop, Hong Kong, where it seems there are bigger fish to fry than a global pandemic, especially now as infection rates in the city have started to slow again. For many citizens, restrictions imposed over recent months to protect public health seem to have political motives too. To explain more, our Asia editor James Chambers sent us this report. The coronavirus hit Hong Kong at the end of January, just before Chinese New Year, overshadowing what is the most important holiday in the calendar. Nine months later, and the pandemic was still up to no good, crimping the number two holiday, Mid-Autumn Festival, at the end of September, the Chinese equivalent to Easter. Extended families were prevented from having meals together at restaurants because the government continues to put a stop to group gatherings of five or more. The main justification is to protect public health. However, with daily cases now in single figures, pro-democracy activists accuse Chief Executive Carrie Lam and her administration of using and abusing the restrictions to outlaw the types of mass street protests that were commonplace throughout 2019. True or not, 
the government has certainly benefited from the coronavirus in more ways than one. And I've seen this conflation of politics and the pandemic play out right on my doorstep. This year, my neighbourhood of Taihang scrapped its famous mid-autumn fire dragon dance because of COVID-19, cancelling an annual tradition and top tourist attraction that usually draws huge crowds onto the streets. In its place, we were treated to a parade of police vans and officers standing in huddles outside popular spots like Craft Beer Bar Second Draft, eyeballs peeled for protesters attempting to disrupt China's National Day, which also fell on the same day this year. Taihang has become a potential target for opponents of the People's Republic since it was picked in July as the site for Beijing's Office for Safeguarding National Security, a secretive agency mandated by the new security law. Since then, my strolls to the supermarket have involved sidestepping police and private security, who stand outside, guarding what was once a mediocre state-owned hotel, favoured by mainland tour groups. As newer neighbours go, the security office hasn't been all that bad. Street smokers have been scared away, and early fears of huge water barricades blocking the entrance have so far been unfounded. In fact, the flagpole outside, flying China's five-starred red flag, is surrounded by a fetching array of healthy-looking pot plants. Like many of us, the building's new occupants may have discovered their green fingers during the pandemic. Nevertheless, this leafy location is nothing short of a show of strength. An ex-British army officer I spoke to about it recognised the strategy as coming straight out of Belfast, where he served during the Northern Irish Troubles. British forces stamped their authority on symbolically important districts by planting a flag, both literally and metaphorically. The Chinese have done the same thing in the spiritual home of Hong Kong's protests, Causeway Bay. Taihang just so happens to be moments away from Victoria Park, starting point of the city's major marches. This power play escalated in September in the build-up to China's National Day, starting with the unveiling of a crude red banner that went up outside the hotel-turned-security office, declaring in yellow lettering and simplified characters the 71st anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. Hong Kong police marked the PRC's birthday by setting up a roadblock alongside Victoria Park, stationing water cannons and armoured vehicles along the road. Minivan drivers were routinely pulled over, while any young Hong Kong youths in the vicinity, dressed in black and carrying a backpack, could expect to be surrounded by six riot police, eager to rifle through his things. The prospect of being stopped and searched panicked an artist friend who was coming over to my place with a hammer and a screwdriver to help to take some paintings down and fill the holes. I recently decided to move out of Taihang for unrelated reasons. The result of the strict COVID-19 regulations, the strict new security law, and the strict policing of both of these sets of rules has the pandemic and the protests firmly under control. A period of relative peace and quiet now beckons, both for me and for Hong Kong. James Chambers there in Hong Kong. We end our round-the-world tour in India, where the country's class system has been the suspected catalyst for soaring infection rates. As lockdowns are lifted, 
the wealthy have been reluctant to re-emerge, but the working classes who can't afford that luxury have slowly started bringing some of the familiar bustle back to the streets. Journalist Lindy Prickett is based in New Delhi and sent us this report on how the country's capital seems to be starting to get its groove back. Every time I venture out of my quiet New Delhi neighbourhood, I'm jolted to see the capital's hustle and bustle is almost back in full swing. But my surprise says more about the two Indias than it does about COVID-19. You see, the average affluent Indian is still self-isolating, working mostly from home, ordering just about everything from pricey online outlets, or if they have staff sending them out to buy their supplies. But the reason for this self-imposed lockdown is not out of fear of the virus, but for the country's healthcare system. Rumors of bed shortages, complete with pictures of patients and hallways and parking lots acting as waiting rooms, are still in circulation. After all, more than 100,000 people have died of the disease. And while state-of-the-art hospitals might exist in Delhi, the worry is if a hospital bed, never mind a private room, will be available should you need it. On top of that, there's constant grumbling that wealthy out-of-town patients have flooded into the city to tap its premier health facilities. So paranoia and affluence have kept many pockets of Delhi in a perpetual self-imposed lockdown, bar the occasional walk in a park or maybe a visit to a friend's house which still feels like a risky, naughty indulgence. But the working class, whether it's restaurant chefs or ice cream sellers, mechanics or construction workers, have had little choice but to return to their hard-won positions. At first, it was just a few, almost timidly, returning back to work, and then every day, more and more, which in turn has encouraged the rest of us to tiptoe out. I say tiptoe because India's lockdown had quite a stupefying effect on the country. It wasn't just that it was the most extreme lockdown in the world, with non-essential businesses ordered shut and people encouraged to stay indoors for more than two months. But what was extraordinary is that people did so. Just stop and think about that. When a country where chaos and noise is the norm, where 1.3 billion people live packed on top of each other, goes quiet and shows exceptional restraint, it is extraordinary. When a country blighted by pollution because of rampant development and a ubiquitous disregard for rules gets blue skies and clean air again, the effect is mesmerizing, stupefying even. But now the mood for those without the luxury to act on caution has shifted to denial. And Delhi's back in action, though not quite to its overflowing capacity. Buses and trains are only allowed to be partly filled. The same goes for restaurants and malls, which are only really busy on the weekends. People wear masks, but not everyone, though that's more a statement of the heat and discomfort than politics. And there's still a pleasant absence of having to hold out your elbow lest the person behind you tries to cut in front of you. And even more delightfully, spitting in the streets continues to be on hold. But restlessness still hangs heavy. The big fat Indian weddings and holiday season parties that should be ramping up this time of year in all echelons of society aren't allowed in large numbers. Travel across the country, never mind out of it, is inconvenient at best. And if people aren't anxious about the disease, then angst over the economy is rarely far from anyone's thoughts. 
which would all explain why the country has gone bonkers for a Bollywood scandal, the suicide or was it murder of a beloved actor from the wrong side of the tracks has gone from a national distraction to an unhealthy obsession. One might even say a novel kind of virus. My thanks to Lindy Prickett for the report from New Delhi. Well, that's the end of your round-the-world trip. Probably time to unpack your bags and do a little bit of laundry. That's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. To play you out of this week's programme, here's Kings of Leon with Around the World. Thank you for listening, city lovers. (laughs) 